1 Corinthians 14, 1-25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing in my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's quite a passage. So, guests, we're so glad that you joined us for your first and probably last visit ever. And many of our regulars may not come back either. So what are we looking at today? We're continuing our study through this letter to the church in Corinth. Paul wrote to a very troubled church. He wrote to help correct them in practices that had gone awry to answer questions about what was happening, what should be happening, what, what, what shouldn't be happening. And here we find the Apostle Paul has written to instruct the church in Corinth in the correct way to do bodybuilding exercises. Paul has written in this chapter the correct way to do bodybuilding exercises. I mean, we've all heard the advice, you should lift with your legs and not with your back. 
you know, again, the lift itself is not bad. The exercise might be good, but if you lift with your back instead of your legs, you might do damage to the body. See, so even a good bodybuilding exercise done incorrectly can do more harm than good. And Paul says, hey guys, it's the same way with the body of Christ. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and they're doing damage to the body spiritually because they're essentially lifting with their back and not their legs. The entire chapter is the right way to do bodybuilding exercises. He says, this is how to exercise your spiritually empowered gifts and abilities in a way that builds the body and doesn't harm it. Because as we've seen already in Corinth, as we've been studying through this letter, the gifts were being exercised in ways in the church in Corinth that were doing more harm than good. And friends, we need to understand there was nothing wrong with any of the gifts. All of the gifts that God gives are good gifts. The problem was the way those gifts were being exercised. They were spiritually lifting in the wrong way. The good gifts were being used in a way that was causing harm and not building the body. And and so Paul's obvious emphasis throughout this passage is he wants the Corinthians to exercise all of their gifts, whatever their gifts are, in a way that builds up the body. And we actually hear Paul's main point in chapter 14, verse 12, which Will just read for us. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. This is the main idea throughout this. For all of the other details, this is Paul's main idea. He repeats it six times in this chapter. Verse 3, speak to people for their upbuilding. Verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, that the church may be built up. Verse 12, we just read that. Verse 17, you may be given thanks, but the other person is not being built up. And verse 26, let all things be done for building up. I mean, Paul's main point is blatant. He repeats it over and over again. He says, the manifest presence and power of the Holy Spirit among you should be something that builds you up, not divides you. The practice of the Spirit's presence amongst you should bring you together, not tear you apart. But as we found earlier in our study through Corinthians, the the church in Corinth had had this unhealthy fascination with and relationship to spiritual gifts, especially the gift of speaking in tongues. And so Paul is writing a corrective. He says this is the right way to exercise your gifts so that it builds up and doesn't tear down the body. In fact, the last few chapters, chapters 12 and 13, really both were just written to set the stage for chapter 14, which is where we are today. In verse 1 in chapter 14, Will read for us, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He says, pursue love, and isn't that what we just read and talked about last week? So for those of you that are here and are like, oh my gosh, prophecy in tongues, you should have been here last week. Last week we got to talk about love. It was great. It's a little joke, a little humor. It's okay to laugh. Chapter 12 was about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 was about love, the way to practice those spiritual gifts. And here in chapter 14, Paul's going to specifically address 
the use, the exercise of two of those spiritual gifts. Prophecy and tongues. And Paul argues, since you all desire to pursue manifestations of the Spirit's work amongst you, desire speaking a word of prophecy over speaking a word in tongues. Why? Because he says you should strive to excel in building up the church. Paul's main point. But this chapter does raise for us a whole series of questions that we get to talk about. First, what exactly is this gift of tongues that Paul's addressing and that was gone awry in Corinth? Second, what exactly is the gift of prophecy? I mean, that's also foreign to us as well. Third, in Corinth, how were tongues being exercised in a way that was, instead of building up the body, harming the body? Fourth, why should prophecy be preferred over tongues? And finally, today, how should the gifts of prophecy and tongues be properly exercised if they should be exercised at all? And with that, let's settle in and I'll try to get you out of here before the fireworks fly on the 4th. But who knows, as we study through it, fireworks might start flying anyway. It's kind of controversial in some places. Because in all seriousness, we have to admit that this is one of the more difficult and debated passages in the New Testament. And I have done a ridiculous amount of reading and studying in preparation for this and for next week's sermons because we're going to take two chapters, two weeks, to study this, chapter 14. And I promise that some of you are probably going to disagree with some of the conclusions that I reach on some of these issues. But church, as we've seen with this or any other difficult passage of Scripture, even the difficult, unclear passages of Scripture do have a correct understanding. And our job, our work, our desire is to wrestle with each passage of Scripture so that we might most accurately understand the intention of the author and so that we might more fully obey the Word of God to us. And that's what we're going to endeavor to do now. So let's look at this passage. First, let's talk about tongues and prophecy. And first understand tongues and prophecy, we're actually going to go back a little bit to the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can open up there with me, or if you want to use the Pew Bible, that's page 1081, page 1081 in the Pew Bible. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 to get some context on these gifts of tongues and prophecy. And the context for Acts chapter 2 is, we remember, Jesus rose from the dead that first Easter morning. Forty days later, Jesus ascended into heaven. But before he ascended, he told his disciples, his followers, he said, Go gather in Jerusalem and wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so ten days after that, at the Feast of Pentecost, this is what happened. And we find Acts chapter 2. So again, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then just skipping down a few verses to verse 13, it says, But others who were there started mocking and heard what was going on, said they're filled with new wine. So the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, and they begin to speak in tongues or languages they themselves had never learned, and they didn't understand. Am I crackling? Fine, I guess I'm the problem. I guess we'll use this one. So the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and they began to speak in tongues and languages that they themselves had never learned, and that they didn't understand. And some who were there heard the gospel being proclaimed in their own language, in a language they understood. But others amongst them said, all I hear is incoherent babbling. And they accused the disciples of being drunk. Now, note how the Apostle Peter responds to all that's happening. Because obviously somebody better explain what's going on. And so Peter steps out and he explains, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which was nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, now friends, note that Peter explains the phenomenon of the disciples speaking in tongues by proclaiming this promise from the prophet Joel. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, we should expect people to prophesy, he says. So what we note here is that Peter is somehow equating speaking in tongues with prophecy. Because he explains the speaking in tongues by quoting Joel, who's clearly talking about prophecy. So there's some kind of relationship. And we see that later on in the book of Acts 2, when the Apostle Paul prays for the Gentile believers in Acts chapter 19. It records Acts 19, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, we see some kind of a relationship between speaking in tongues and prophesying. So whatever these gifts are, we find that there is some sort of relationship between the two of them. And in 1 Corinthians 14 that Will read for us, Paul helps us understand a little bit more the relationship and the differences between tongues and prophecy. So first, tongues. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. Paul says, The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. Okay. Now there's a discussion in Christian circles about the nature of what they mean by tongues or languages. When the Bible discusses speaking in tongues, is it describing xenoglossia or glossolalia? Now, it sounds like I'm speaking in foreign tongues, doesn't it? Xenoglossia and glossolalia. Now, hang with me because this will make sense. Both of these are Greek words. 
xenoglossia from xeno, foreigner, glossia, tundra language. So it's the language of a, it's a foreign tongue. It's another human language of a foreigner speaking, but you don't understand it. That's xenoglossia. And so were they speaking in human languages that they themselves had never learned, but others understood? Or was this what's called glossolalia, which is also from Greek. Again, glossa means tongue or language, and lalia means to talk. So this has come to mean speaking in a tongue or language that's actually completely unknown to humans. So, for example, in the previous chapter, which we studied last week, you might remember that that chapter began in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. And some people argue the gift of tongues is not to speak in the language of men, but it's to speak in the tongues of angels, a language of heaven, a spiritual language, a language that has meaning, but that no human culture speaks, thus we do not understand. And so when the Bible references speaking in tongues, does it mean xenoglossia or glossolalia? Does it mean human tongues or some kind of a spiritual language? And the truth is, we can't be dogmatic about it. Because neither side has an airtight case. It's not completely clear. However, in my opinion, when the Scripture discusses speaking in tongues, and especially here in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems to be discussing glossolalia. Speaking in a language that has meaning, but that no human culture speaks, and thus we humanly do not understand some kind of a spiritual language. The fact that verse 2, Paul says, the one speaking in a tongue speaks not to man, but to God. Well, God has no reason to give me the ability to speak to him in French. Further, Paul emphasizes here in verse 2, no one understands him. No other human understands the tongue speaker, but that would not necessarily be true if this was a human language. Because there might be someone who did understand if this was another human language. And further, later on in the argument, verses 10 and 11, Paul seems to contrast the phenomenon of speaking in tongues with speaking in known human languages as if they're two different things. So, especially here in this discussion in 1 Corinthians 14, tongues appears to be some sort of a spiritually empowered prayer language that does have meaning, but is not a language that any human culture speaks or understands. But like I said, friends, we can't be dogmatic on this point. Because there's good arguments the other way. But what we want to remember as we study this, and even as we start to talk about these things, Paul's main point in this passage is not to describe what tongues is, but to prescribe their proper use. Remember, Paul's concern in this chapter is not explanation, but exercise. The people in Corinth already know what tongues are because they're happening. The problem with tongues was not that he had to describe what they were. It was that he needed to change their exercise, their use. So again, it's not entirely clear, but we can take some of these evidences and make conjectures. And as we've already seen in the previous chapters, the church in Corinth struggled with pride and division. And so these manifestations of the Spirit, including tongues that were meant for the building up of the body, were being exercised in a way that were dividing the body. 
You see, if those in Corinth were exercising tongues in a way that were building up individuals but putting down others, you know, they, they were probably doing it in such a way as to say, look, I'm more spiritual, look what I can do. And you can't do that. And causing division. And Paul says it's time to correct your exercise so that the use of all the gifts, whatever they are, becomes a body-building exercise. And notice Paul doesn't say tongues are being misused in Corinth, so they need to stop altogether. Instead, we read in verse 5, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, please understand, Paul's not saying that all will speak in tongues. Paul's not saying that speaking in tongues is normative of every Christian, nor some litmus test for whether or not the Spirit has come to you. In fact, you might remember back in chapter 12, at the very end of that chapter, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, and 30, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the assumed answer to every one of those is no. Well, no, not all are apostles. Not all work miracles, and in the same way, not all will speak in tongues. So when Paul says, I want you all to speak with tongues, he, he's, he's simply saying that the abuse of tongues doesn't mean that they shouldn't be used. Wrong use doesn't necessitate no use, but instead calls for the right use. I mean, again, even if God's good gifts are abused, that doesn't mean we should stop using them altogether. For example, in this world... God's good gift of sex is regularly misused, but I've never heard a married Christian couple arguing we should thus stop having good sex with our spouses because the good gift of sex is being misused. Or God's good gift of food is regularly abused, and even if you might be carrying a few extra pounds, that doesn't mean you should never eat again. Wrong use doesn't mean you should move to no use. You should aim for right use. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, the right use of tongues is what should be happening. And then he drops a bombshell on them in verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm not saying that you need to stop practicing tongues because even I speak in tongues. However, if you do exercise this gift, make sure you do it correctly. Again, Paul's point throughout this is that tongues or any of the gifts are not the problem. The exercise of the gift is the problem and what's causing division. He says you're lifting with your back and not your legs. You're exercising wrong. And even if that exercise of the gift, even if the gift itself is good, doing it wrongly, you are hurting the body. And so I want to give you instructions on how to make this a proper body building exercise. Now, throughout chapter 14, we hear Paul repeatedly contrast tongues, this gift of tongues, with the gift of prophecy. See, Paul's actually calling the church away from their unhealthy fascination with the gift of tongues, and he says, instead, you should be pursuing this gift of prophecy. So, so what is prophecy? Well, after saying in verse 2 that one speaking in a tongue speaks to to God and humans don't understand, Paul goes on in verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. So Paul says the gift of tongues is a spiritually empowered utterance enabling the speaker to speak to God mysteries in prayer. Thus, tongues is a prayer phenomenon that encourages and builds up the faith of the speaker, but prophecy is spiritually empowered utterance that enables the speaker to reveal mysteries to the church for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation of the church. Prophecy encourages and builds up the faith of the church. So, so again, both tongues and prophecy here are described as spirit-empowered communication. In one, you speak to God for the purpose of building up the speaker. In another, you speak to the church for building up the church. And at this point, you might go, well, well, why would tongues, why would speaking in some kind of a prayer language unknown be building up the speaker? Simply stated, it's a manifestation of the Spirit's presence and power. It's evidence of His nearness and His work. And such evidence that the Spirit is near and active through you might bring comfort and might build up the faith of the speaker. And Paul says, if you're going to do that, do that in private. The church gatherings are not the place to do it. And stop fixating on it. Stop being fascinated by it. Because when you gather as a church, it's always better to pursue gifts that build up not only yourself, but the whole church like prophecy does. And he gives us three illustrations to say why this is so important in verses 7 through 11. First, Paul plays name that tune in verse 7. He says, if an instrument doesn't sound a distinct note that the hearer can understand, if it doesn't, you'll never decipher the song. And if you don't know what song's being played, how can you sing along to the song? So, I'd rather play a distinct note, speak a distinct word so that others can join in. And he illustrates with the trumpet in verse 8. The trumpet on the battlefield. Long before there were radios, they controlled the movement on the battlefield with trumpets. They would either have different trumpets or different sounds that the trumpet might make. And one meant advance. One meant retreat. One probably said, execute this maneuver. One meant execute that maneuver. And if the sound was not distinct and clear, the army wouldn't know which way to go. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, we must understand the meaning of any language, of any human language, if we're going to communicate clearly with another person. And Paul's point in all of these is when you're gathered, what you want is intelligible clarity for the sake of the church. Because only the clear will allow the church to sing together. Only the intelligible will cause the army to move together. Only the understood will guarantee communication. Thus, if you're going to desire spirit-empowered utterances, he says to the church in Corinth, pursue prophecy over tongues. Because tongues might be good, but tongues only builds up the speaker. Whereas prophecy has the potential of building up the whole church. And Paul emphasizes this distinction in verses 16 and 17, where he says, if you give thanks with your spirit speaking in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. Paul says, even if your utterance is inspired by the Spirit, and even if by the Spirit you are somehow legitimately giving thanks and praising God. However, the outsider, the non-tongued speaker, is not being built up by what's happening. 
And as such, Paul concludes in verse 19, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, that's Paul's point. Paul's point is exercise your gifts in the church in a way that builds up but does not harm the body. Strive for gifts that build up the body and not just gifts that build you up. And now as an aside, because you've seen it a couple of times here, he does say that there is an appropriate use of tongues within the church. And he says only if someone is there to interpret what's being said. Why? Because again, his point is the church must benefit from the use of the gifts when gathered. So Paul's emphasis is on building up the church. Tongues themselves are not the problem, Paul says. It's your exercise of the tongues within the gathering of the church that needs correction. So Paul says, tongues rightly practiced are fine, but within the gathering of the church, pursue that which builds up the church. Pursue prophecy. And having said all this about the relationship between tongues and prophecy, you're still out there going at them, but you haven't defined what prophecy is. Do you even want to touch that one at this point? Friends, we need to understand correctly because many Christians actually have a very, very wrong idea of what prophecy is. When they hear the word prophecy, we have these ideas because what happens is we think that prophecy is foretelling, mostly foretelling, when prophecy is actually mostly foretelling. Prophecy may contain sometimes foretelling, but prophecy is mostly foretelling. What's the difference? Foretelling is about telling the future. And, and that's what we find sometimes. I mean, in, in everyday life, if somebody makes a good guess, you go, whoa, you're a prophet. But like you made a, a great prediction of the future. And so we have an idea that, in fact, all prophecy is about telling the future, foretelling the future. But friends, that's inaccurate. Because the majority of biblical prophecy is not foretelling, but foretelling. There is foretelling in biblical prophecy. We do find that the prophets foretold much that was to come, inspired by the Spirit. But more often than not, what did the prophets do? It wasn't foretelling, but foretelling. See, foretelling is not speaking about the future. future. Foretelling is speaking God's Word into unknown situation, into the situation in front of you, revealing God's will, interpreting His purposes, calling God's people to faithfulness and fidelity. Forthtelling isn't about predicting the future, but speaking God's will for the present. And the majority of the Old Testament prophets, that's what they did. Read through the prophets. They were constantly speaking into the situation of their day. They were constantly calling out what had gone wrong, speaking God's will, and calling God's people to repentance. At times, God did speak through the Old Testament prophets for foretelling, where they gave word of the future, words of the coming Messiah, words about the kingdom that was to come. But the majority of what the prophets give us is foretelling. Revealing hidden sins, calling people to faithfulness. The majority of the Old Testament was foretelling. And the same is true in the New Testament prophecy. You know, there's a famous example of this. Well, what do we mean by foretelling? There's a famous example in Jesus' own life in John chapter 4. In John 4, Jesus engages a Samaritan woman in conversation. And in the course of the conversation, he says to her, John 4, starting in verse 16, Jesus says, go call your husband to come here. The woman answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. 
For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Because this is foretelling. Jesus isn't predicting the future here. By the Spirit of God, he reveals the truth of the situation for the purpose of calling a person to repentance. And that was the majority of prophecy in the New Testament. Foretelling. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, desire prophecy. And in fact, as we saw a couple chapters back in chapter 11, God gave instructions for women praying and prophesying in the gatherings of the church. Next week in the second half of chapter 14, we'll hear Paul give instructions for people who are prophesying in the church. Prophecy, to prophesy in the spirit of the Lord, is to speak through, speak to the people from the Lord to reveal the truth of the situation, the will of the Lord in that situation, to call people back to the Lord for repentance. And this type of foretelling was understood to be a regular part of the life of the gathered church. And in fact, Paul says, when that happens, this is what it's going to look like. And it's the last words that Will read for us in verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. An intelligible spirit inspired revelation of the truth for the purpose of conviction, calling to account, disclosing secrets, upbuilding encouragement, consolation, so that persons might be led to worship God and declare God is really among you. All right, all that being said, we need to ask, how does prophecy practiced in the church in Corinth relate to the authoritative Old Testament prophecy such as we have recorded in our Old Testament? So we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, or even Moses, who in Deuteronomy 18 is listed as the first prophet. Those prophets spoke with a divine authority and a spirit-inspired infallibility. The words of those prophets was God's unfailing, unfaltering word to us. But what about words of prophecy spoken in Corinth in that day? Did those words have the same divine authority and infallibility as the words of the prophets of old? And in short, the answer is no. First, we find repeatedly the call to test and weigh prophecies. Whenever someone in Corinth would say, thus says the Lord, Paul said, test or weigh to see whether or not that's true. Next week, we're going to see in the second half of, ch of chapter 14, 14 verse 29, in the gatherings, let two or three prophets speak, then let others weigh what is said. Similarly, Paul commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5:19 through 22, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So whatever prophecy was in Corinth in the New Testament, it doesn't bear the infallibility of Moses, Isaiah, or Joel. And further, prophecy even in the Old in the New Testament had to be submitted to the authority of the Spirit-inspired Scripture. You see, Paul made an incredible claim in this passage that we haven't gotten to, but I'm going to give a little preview of coming attractions. In chapter 14 here, verse 37, Paul writes, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
Now, I, I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I promise to get you out of here before the fireworks. So suffice to say, Paul says, the prophets and prophecy must acknowledge and submit to my words, that my words are a command of the Lord. How can Paul say something like that? Because Paul is one of the apostles. From among Jesus' disciples, he called 12 apostles. Then he gave a special call to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. The apostles were given a special calling and authority for the establishment of the church. As we heard Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles. First apostles. Because apostles were given a unique calling and spiritual gifting. And here Paul declares that any prophet or prophecy needs to acknowledge and submit to the authority of him, the apostles, and his words. Acknowledge that as the very command of God. Friends, our New Testament is a recording of the Spirit-inspired, divinely authoritative words of Jesus' apostles. Paul wrote the majority of our New Testament, 13 or 14 of the 27 books. John, the apostle, wrote the gospel with his name, three letters, the book of Revelation. Matthew wrote the gospel with his name, Mark was a scribe for the Apostle Peter and gave us his gospel. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul and companion to other apostles, collected carefully their eyewitness testimony and gave us his gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. The Apostle Peter wrote two letters, so on and so forth. The New Testament is the divinely inspired, authoritative, spirit-inspired teaching of Jesus' apostles. And Paul says, prophets, and prophecy must submit and acknowledge the apostolic authority or it's invalid. So prophecy spoken in Corinth didn't bear the same weight or authority as Moses, Isaiah, Joel, or Peter, John, or Paul. Whatever prophecy might have been spoken in the New Testament church in Corinth had to be tested and weighed, and it had to be submissive to the divine authority and spirit-inspired words of the apostles and the capital P prophets of the Old Testament. Any word of prophecy in the New Testament church had to conform to and submit to the Scripture. And all this being said, we've gone a long way towards answering all the questions I think I put out at the beginning of the sermon, except one, and that's how should tongues and prophecy be exercised in the church today if they should be exercised at all? Because some people claim that with the completion of the New Testament Scripture, some of the more miraculous gifts like tongues, prophecy, miracles, and healings, those gifts all passed away, while other gifts that stand in the exact same list continue today, such as teaching, helping, administration. Church, we're going to get more into this in next week's discussion. However, such arguments are biblically weak, and I find them uncompelling. Rather, I believe Paul's words to the church in Corinth at the end of chapter 14 are also words that could be applied to the church in Camden or the church anywhere today. 1 Corinthians 14, 39-40. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Well, what does that mean? And, and practically, what does that look like? And, and how do you prevent abuses then? Well, those are all good questions, and I'm leaving you on a cliffhanger, because we're all tired and sweaty and we want to be done. So tune in next week, and we will explore the answers to these and other pressing questions. Same bat time, same bat channel.
But until then, church, the most important thing I want you to take away from this passage is Paul's most important thing in this passage, which was everything should be done for the building up of the body of Christ. Friends, are you exercising everything that you've been given for the building up of the body? Are you exercising everything for the sake of building up others? Are you here just to build yourself up or to build up the body of Christ? Because Paul clearly desires that church members be actively seeking the Holy Spirit to empower them to build up the church. So maybe for us, in response to this passage, a good prayer church might be this week, Spirit, in whatever manner you desire, fill and empower me for the building up of your church and for the glory of your name. Because that was Paul's prayer. And friends, if that was our prayer, what might happen if God answered a prayer like that? Okay, let's pray now. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your church. Thank you for what you're doing. We confess there's much we don't understand. There's much we still have to discuss in this topic. But Lord, we pray that you would lead our hearts to the truth. Lead our hearts to you. And lead our hearts to build up one another, to build up the church for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory. Move through us, we pray, in Jesus' name.